couple weeks ago, I sat down in the home of the lovely, brilliant, and talented Hope Warren to talk a little bit about the idea of this Imagination Revolution UBI. We talked about a lot of things, which is not challenging for us to do. We're both very talkative people. Uh, And I found myself then digging through a lot of content that we recorded and a bunch of the conversation that we didn't record. So it's been a lot of editing, sort of trying to put it all together for y'all into a show that makes some amount of sense. But I hope I hope I have achieved something close enough to the goal. Uh, I want to introduce you to Hope, who is a 41-year-old trans woman who lives in Western Canada and comes from a blue-collar background. She has worked as a carpenter, um, as well as working in, you know, resource uh, industry jobs. Uh, And at this point in her life has found her, has found herself no longer able to participate in that sort of work and has been outside of conventional workplace economy structures for the last 40 months or so while she has had some opportunities to step out. So when we sat down, we talked a little bit about that. We talked about what this process of reassessment and readiness has looked like for her, uh, as well as a bunch of other things that come up, uh, like how capitalism allows us to feel valuable or not, and how that plays into so, so many things. So I hope that you enjoy our conversation and that some of the edits that I made were not too um, drastic in such a way that you miss pieces. Uh, I want to thank you for tuning in and for listening to this first episode of Imagination Revolution UBI. It's only going to get better from here, folks. Uh, thanks again to Hope for being my first guest, and thank you, all of you, for listening. Of course, you can find my Patreon at patreon.com slash k-o-r-i-d-o-t-y, and you can support the creation of this show as well as other projects that I have going on. You can also keep up with this show and those other projects by going to my website, which is my name, CoryDoty.com, K-O-R-I-D-O-T-Y.com. And you can find all of the other ways to get a hold of me and find me on the socials and so on and so forth right there on my website. Uh, So thanks again. Uh, Feel free to drop me a line. Let me know what you thought about this conversation. And let me know if you would like to be a part of a conversation exploring this idea of what if. Seeing people with super good intentions step into um, cultures, knowing what was best for them, based on what was best for themselves mm-hmm. and saying, well, you obviously want to go in the same direction that I'm going. Cause this is success. Cause this is success, not privilege. I've worked hard for this. Yeah. And so if you work hard, then you'll have the same results as me. And so my grandfather would like empower indigenous people, but really what he was doing was colonizing and assimilating them to some degree in which they did find a, a measure of more success inside colonial structures after assimilation. But I would argue, I don't think it was very progressive were like actually good and it's the same thing with like the the work all the work is already done (laughs) all the work is already done we just actually have to implement that shit now the one thing i was thinking about the other day though that's really interesting is i was talking to my friend about montessori school Mm -hmm. because recently what's happened with work safe is they've done a um they've done like a very exhaustive 
aptitude test on me. Okay. It's called like a cop, cops and rad five or something like that. I there was a that had to do spelling, um, mathematic comprehension, word comprehension, and what they do from that is they find out a couple things. They t they find out where my learning style and learning capacity is at as okay. an adult, whether that's. Uh, not high school, high school, post-secondary. Right. And then it also asked me a number of questions which are like response questions, like binary response questions that are timed in order to figure out like how my brain would work under quick, whatever. Yeah. And then what are my actual fields that I'm looking, I'm interested in doing? Because mm -hmm. if we can get the maximum amount out of all that, then my, they're, they're going to essentially retrain me to re-enter the workforce. But they're having all these things that are in consideration. Mm-hmm. It's like, I never got that when I signed up for the workforce. Right. But now that like, I'm on the injured list, they're like, well, to get you back successfully in the workforce, we're going to have to figure out where you are, figure out your learning style, figure out what you like, and figure out how we can support you in order for you to be successful. I'm like, well, where, <laughs> kind of where was that um, when I entered the workforce? <laughs> like <laughs> before I, I incurred all these injuries. Yeah, because I think, I think a lot of us, but that it reminds me of Montessori, like, these kids are assessed, like, are you, like, which way are you going here? You know, is it the bow mm -hmm. or the basket? You like numbers? You like art? What do you like? You know what I mean? It's, you give people options and let them choose. And people will choose, probably, with some support, things that are going to be good for them. And if it's good for them, truly, it's, it's very likely going to be good for their community. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've talked to my vocational rehabilitation consultant about is... career path that I go, I want it to be meaningful towards, for my community in some way. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things I like about carpentry. I can, I can build a house. Yeah. I can build shelter and I know what needs, I know like, I know how to do that in a way that will keep water out, that will keep heat in. These are practical and good skills that I was, and probably still will use for the benefit of my community. But when I'm thinking about career changes, it's not enough that like, oh, you'd be really good in sales and make a ton of money. It's like, okay, but what will I be able to offer? And because I have nothing to offer there, and it's for, for me as a human being, I'm not drawn to that shit. Because I'm pretty sure I could be good at sales. Sure. I and mean, I have been good at sales in the past. Sure. But for me, it's like where my passions draw me is not just for what it can do for me, but it's also like now that I'm getting into coding and whatnot, I'm thinking about like I know lots of other sex workers that I could make websites for and save them costs. I know lots of uh, small businesses, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And just – and that – I could charge them very, very little or even just trade for basic necessities and give people access to things. And that's important to me. So I think when we give people the, the responsibility and accountability to ask themselves, what do I actually want to do? And then we give them the support afterwards to go, it's, it's good for every system that they're interacting with. Mm -hmm. Exactly what you're saying. When people have a passion, they are supported and given the things that they need to be able to move towards it, that they will do that in a way that serves society, right? Like people, everybody is sitting on gifts mm -hmm. and that I think that the, the requirement that something be a part of the workforce or, you know, which largely is a matter of if something is profitable to the existing paradigm or not. Right, where, and even still, you know, like thinking about parenting young children, mm. right? Like parenting young children is absolutely necessary for the perpetuation of capitalism, right? We need children. We need more children. Uh, we, there's always going to be a need for replacement workers. Yeah. And we have found ways to devalue that labor to a place where it's not considered valuable. Labor. Oh yeah. It's yeah. There's the assumption that it is just going to be like that. It's terrible. And so, you know, the, the question then is like, so taking it out of that idea that everything has to be profitable or everything has to have a calculatable monetary value. Mm -hmm. What are the things that you feel? So, you know, like you're saying you want to, feel like you're offering something you are of value or you are contributing, contributing like yeah. what are the things that you uh you know deep down 
that you want the the changes that you want to make like what do you want to see happen in the world and if if you had all of the support to do that you had all the access to the resources that you needed what what would that work look like for you yeah i so few of us get to ask that question because it's like so many of us are like i just want to not be homeless Could I go back to my previous job with these injuries? I have permanent limitations now, so no, I can't. So can my company that I was working for make accommodations so that with my new permanent limitations, I can still work there? Well, that does something called undue, undue harm to their company, so I can't. I can't, with my permanent, with my disabilities, I can't participate in carpentry. Right. So then the next question is, with the skills I have right in this moment, can I step into another job that will provide the level of income um, that my previous job well no because I was a third-year carpenter so most entry-level jobs that I have with my skill set now like that's the only other accreditation I really have is through carpentry mm -hmm. so it'd be like customer service stuff it just it, that metric didn't match up so then the next would be like what what job could I step into with my current level of education or like my adjudicated educate like levels yeah where the training would be one year or less and there's a number of jobs that I could step into that if they gave me 30 weeks or 40 weeks of training, um, that could be anything from a drafting technician to front-end web development. They also recommended, because of my aptitude scores, they recommended paralegal, mm -hmm. professional writer. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. but um, So these are all jobs I could step into that would make the similar amount of money I would be making in carpentry, um, but I could do them with my current physical limitations, and I could do them with training that would be done in less than a year. Mm -hmm. Okay, but it's like, what we're actually talking about is me at 41, being trans, having a radical career change. You know, I'm a demographic that is chronically underrepresented and underemployed, underhoused, and now it's like, I'm given this like, lifetime opportunity, it feels like once in a lifetime opportunity, to, and it, it doesn't seem like, one year of training doesn't seem like a lot at 41 years old to me. No. But one year of training and the support to do it is going to radically change my life in a positive way. And it's not, it's not um, an exceptional thing. Like most people with a year worth of support and training after we figure out what it is their passions really want could radically change their life. But there's no, there's just no support structure for that. Yeah. But this will keep me from a capitalist point of view, this will keep me participating in that system for the rest of my life. And it will cost the system um, a, such a small proportion of what I will contribute to the system. So I have to participate in the system. So even if they say like, Hope, we really want you to do this job, and I say, I don't want to do it, and they go, well, that's what we have to offer you, then I would still, I'd have to play ball, mm -hmm. but I'm advocating for myself in a way now and I'm connecting the dots and I'm doing a lot of that work because I think trans people are really good at doing that already. So I came into this like, I want to do coding. I want to do front and back end web development. Here are the programs I want. I know I still have to jump through all these hoops, but every step of the way I'm going to advocate for myself and every step I've come a little bit closer and a little bit closer to getting that done. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think the fact that we have, um, we have countries in the world that invest in their people and create huge economic and social benefits from that. We have all that data already. Yeah, we know. We know that it is cheaper to help people than to leave them without help. Yeah. I think the the idea that like conservatism is fiscal is it's, it's harder to yeah, it's, it's getting harder and harder to really like rationalize when we have examples like we were talking about before of like yeah, like Housing First and like the Naomi Project and things where we have done the research. We have spent the money to do the research. We know yeah. that actually like getting people housed, getting people a basic income, getting people access to safe supply, all of those things are cheaper, mm -hmm. long run. They have better outcomes in terms of like who is participating in society. I think that that also kind of brings about this other question though of like, what if we actually had unconditional care? Yeah, wouldn't that be amazing? Like, oh my gosh. Like, so 
you know, you've been talking about coding and like the things that you would like to do with that. I saw a video this morning of this guy who is a technologist and like he's a he calls himself the trash robot. Hmm. Um, and he said, you know, I've worked in business. I've had startups. I've worked for government. I've worked for military. I know from that experience that the systems that exist don't allow for the creation of the solutions that we need. Yeah, they create problems. But yeah, they create problems that we don't need either. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah. And so, you know, what he was positing was saying, you know, I've come to a point for myself where I recognize that, like, what we need is mutual aid and direct action. And what that looks like, you know, we were talking earlier about, like, a part, a part of direct action also is diversity of tactics mm -hmm. and what feels like appropriate direct action for you may be different than what feels appropriate totally. for me. Yeah. But that like, if we want to see something different in the world, we, there is a degree to which like we kind of have to make that happen and no one's going to put it out for us. Like yeah. if we want it, we got to get it. Um, and so in doing so we have to have a way of like, getting clear on what it is that we want. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, that's very true. Conservatives like to fall back on the fiscal part, but they use that as a scapegoat to hide their theolo uh, theological morality. It's yeah. like, well, we don't want certain kinds of immigrants in the country because it's bad for the economy. Well, no, I think it's because you're racist. Well, yeah. So I think you can guise it as economy because of this and this and this, but I don't... So it's like, it's, it's, I agree. I think it's harder to call what we currently see as um, conservative theology as anything more than just that. It's theology. It's not based around fiscal, because if it was based around fiscal, the ones conservatives that I know uh, in my life that I would say that are now more progressive, they would say like, well, why aren't we housing the homeless? Because it's cheaper to do that. I would say, why aren't we housing the homeless? Because they have no homes. Yeah. And they're suffering. We're visioning into a time and a society where we recognize that abundance is prevalent. Yes. Every, all of the resource that we could want to do anything exists. Yes. It is not a matter of scarcity. It's a matter of distribution. Mm -hmm. And that if, you know, in that sort of like Star Trek future vision yeah. of like, you know, we don't have these problems anymore because we decided to get rid of them. And that we can make that decision to get rid of these problems. Mm. Um, and on the other side of that, like... You know, however it is that we enact that decision. But when when we as a society make that decision that like, okay, we're not, we're just not going to do this anymore, right? Then what, right? Then when you wake up in the morning, or maybe you don't wake up in the morning, right? Maybe that's also a part of it is that you're like, actually, my sleep cycle yeah. is that like, I work a lot better if I sleep until two in the afternoon and I stay up all night. Yeah. And... That even that aspect of human diversity isn't taken into consideration no. within the capitalist order. And so even that, the, the question of like, when you wake up, what do you do? Yeah, what do you get to do as well? Yeah, like, what do you, what do you get to do? Where's your desire? And like, what do you have access to? Because, like, I mean, you, there's people, like, right now that I would say are living on poverty-scale universal basic incomes through welfare systems. Yeah. I. Right? That's how I'm here. And that's what I'm doing. When you wake up in the morning, it's not like, well, I'd like to go on a plane, go to the Rockies. It's more like, okay, well, you know, there's definitely a budget involved. There's, like, there's money dictates our access to everything. And there's so many ways that if we were even just looking at all of this through a capitalist, this is the problem that this is one of the things that really bugs me about capitalism is that even when we frame it through a capitalist profit driven model, we're still not doing it right. When we give people autonomy, when we give them education, when you give them support, they hand over fist, participate in the system at a much higher level. You know, like when we, when we believe in rehabilitation and not incarceration, 
those people that spend time in jail educate themselves. They come out, they participate in society at a higher level than they went in. That's completely different. That Again, looking from a capitalist model, it may look like on paper that the states, their model works in capitalism, but it only works in capitalism in the market of incarceration. When it comes to the actual social equity of producing GDP, if all the people within their incarcerated system were being educated to produce at higher levels for capitalism when they got out, the overall GDP of the states would be tremendously positively impacted. Mm. But instead, they're looking at the, the growth of the incarceration system through the capital lens, which is doing very well, but it's still negatively impacting their overall GDP because the people aren't, they come out, they're not better able to participate in society. They actually have less um, access to society. They have yeah. less access to money, less access to job, less access to skills. Mm-hmm. So if, if capitalism is a people-driven market, and then we are constantly hamstringing the people, then it's, it's not, but it's not, yeah, it's capitalism is not being done very well by people that are capitalists. It's just, I've had to work very hard to become a member of the middle class, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And then to have all that, the basis of that is my participation based in this like back breaking, demoralizing work. And so I put all my effort into it and put my, all my eggs in that basket which I don't think is an uncommon narrative. The fragility of modern Western masculinity. Yeah. Um, a statue with clay feet. Yeah, like the <laughs> the degree to which uh, men are not given the permission to see themselves as more than their work. Yeah. And that that's a part of the wound of masculinity. Yeah. Is the way that identity is tied into... And reinforced. A, yeah, and it's it's like, you know, your value, your worth, your identity, who you are as a person, is so tied into what you produce for the capitalist system that, yeah, when you're told that you can't do that anymore... It's terrifying. And it, I think it breaks a lot of people. Yeah. Right? But you have had the opportunity with that space yeah. to break open, you know, because I, I think part of how masculinity operates in our culture is that, like, you know, we take little boys, we cut the shit out of them, like, yeah. literally and figuratively. Yeah. Right? Like, we literally cut the head off of their penis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We take, like, the most innervated part of their body and we physically remove it. Step one. Like... <laughs> cut a piece of the dick off. Right? Like, the not just... Like, the part of the body that has, like, the highest concentration of nerves. Mm-hmm. And we'll remove that. Yep. Right? And then from that moment on... <laughs> Such a platform to spring off of. First things first. <laughs> But like from there, then we then we just continue to perpetuate that, right? And we continue to tell little boys uh, to suck it up and to not cry and to not feel and to hard. not yeah. and to and to not let the world break them. But and that like, breaks them. It, bre- it of course it yeah. does. <laughs> and like it's not a measure of sanity to be well adjusted to this society. That's a really good point. Yeah, I'm always caught between the paradigm of. I work, I operate exceptionally well within the grind culture and my stark realization that that's possibly killing me. It's like, I succeed very well in grind culture. Like just being able to like get up and put my body second and put my boss's objectives or capitalism's objectives first. I'm really, it's always what's made me a really good employee. That's another aspect that really broke me during my injury too, is that as a trans woman, I was in a very aggressive field and one of the ways that I was, one of the small ways I was able to feel safe was knowing that I could outpace my colleagues. But even at my age, I could, I could work harder than them. I could lift more than them. I could carry it up the stairs faster than them. And then after my injury, I was aware that that's no longer an option for me. Mm-hmm. So a sense of my safety was taken away too. You know, and so it's, you know, it's, yeah, it was such a, and then I, you know, as a trans person, you have to go do all this, like when you're getting ready for surgeries, you got to go talk to the psychologist and the psychologist, so what do you do? Well, I'm in construction, I'm a carpenter. Oh, really? Are you going to do a career change? No. Like, no. Like, what? No. 
And then I would always hear like, yeah, you know, I knew another girl like that too, but she eventually had to leave. And I was like, well, I'm just going to be a trailblazer, but I'll tell you what, on the outside looking in, I am so glad. I am so glad because I wasn't able to concentrate on aspects of my transition. What you were saying there too, about like having to be hard and then still having to like push and push and push and push there. I think I said it earlier too. And I was like, I wish queers these days were tougher. And then at the same time, like, I wish we could be tender without it having a negative consequence. Yeah. You know, I wish we could be vulnerable and it be okay. And maybe that's why I say things like I wish queers were tougher because now there are spaces in which queer people can be vulnerable and they're okay. Maybe I resent that. Maybe I'm resentful of like not having that or not having it yet or whatever it is. So there's, there's that aspect. But in, in regards to UBI too, that... One of the arguments I've heard even recently um, at our um, Wednesday soirees was um, if we had UBI, then people would just do nothing. And I said, well, would you do nothing? If I gave you UBI, would you do nothing? And he's like, no, I'd, you know, I'd probably play video games for like a month and then I'd maybe start my own little business or I'd spend more time with my kids. Like, okay, well, then why would, why does everyone, it's sort of like in the wintertime when everyone's afraid of everyone else as a driver, but nobody's afraid of themselves. Yeah. And you talk about UBI and they're like, well, I wouldn't be lazy, but I'm sure everyone else would be lazy. Right? You're like, no, it's, you probably wouldn't be. And, you know, honestly, through the support, there were times when, you know, a couple days would go by and I was really depressed and I would lay in bed, which is probably what a depressed person should do instead of having to like force themselves to. Or just like any person yeah. who lives in a human body <laughs> that doesn't need to be producing something yeah. every single day. Like. Maybe that is actually just like a part of the human. It should be. Like, and I mean, I mean, historically that, that has been it. Like historically when we were a more tribal culture, like smaller communities, we worked together and we'd get our shit done and then we'd lounge around and entertain each other for the rest of the day too. Right. It wasn't as common, but you know, we talk about meaningful jobs. It's like when I was, one of the things that really helped during the time I was injured and going through recovery. And I would say it really, really helped my transition too is first of all, my physiotherapist was this, is this amazing, like four foot nine Afghani lady with like the strongest hands and the kindest heart. And I would talk to her, I would talk to her about some of my concerns about my body stuff and she was very attentive. And she had immigrated to Canada at a very young age and her parents always told her like, you are in a place where you can chase your dreams. You don't have to be in survival mode here. You can get an education. You can do whatever you want. And, and she did. She, she is doing the job that she wants to do. Mm -hmm. So I had four women on my um, care team while I was recovering from this injury. And they were all very empowering. So I went from an environment that was like very male-dominated, very violent and aggressive, to an injury which immobilized and changed my life, to the caring hands of this like petite, powerful, amazing woman to the care team of these four incredible professional women. And then when I think about UBI, if UBI was in place and people were just getting the care for their body, because along the way, as I was dealing with my neck injury, there was also like the shoulder thing that I'd always put off and the hip thing I always put off. And now I had a time to stretch it's every almost day. Almost like your whole body is an integrated system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Works together or doesn't. Yeah. And then I had access to a kinesiologist who I could talk to about these things and then a physiotherapist and occupational therapist and this, and my occupational therapist said that the definition of quality of life isn't the kind of job that you can have, but the kind of life you can have afterwards. That's mm -hmm. how she was defining, are you well? And by what I mean as well is not just as much as can you do your job, but after your job is done, can you have a life? So with UBI, we suddenly could also see the elimination of things like menial jobs. Which right? we are already seeing the elimination of, right? Because automation is yes, coming it is yeah and we know that automation is coming and i think that one of the things that of course of course the neoliberal like script behind automation is boss can buy a robot so boss gets to profit off the robot you lose your job too bad mm. but if instead we looked at okay company can afford a robot instead of people, the profits generated from that robot are responsible for maintaining the livelihood of those people who used to do that robot's yeah, job. Yeah. Right? 
like, which I, I was talking about this with my dad at one point, and I said, you know, like, we may be a bit late on this because having that kind of forward thinking would have been really useful in the early 90s when they started introducing ATMs. Mm -hmm. And he corrected me and he said, no, you got to go back further than that mm -hmm. because that kind of thinking would have been really helpful when the first combines rolled across the right. prairies. Yeah, and the factories too. Right. And, yeah. And, and yeah, like we can keep going back. We can yeah. look at, you know, in the Industrial Revolution totally. and, and so on, right? Where like, yes, when, when someone has the capital to purchase the technology required to automate something that used to be done by people, I think that those people who have that capital should be responsible for maintaining the livelihoods of the people who no longer have a livelihood. That's interesting. And I think it's interesting too because there's actually capitalists like Bill Gates that have already proposed that. Where they've already, there's already billionaires that are saying like, well, you know, if we bring in automation to replace all these jobs, there should be some form of automation tax. Yeah. Or, or at least, you know, it's like that Willy Wonka, the, the Willy, Wonka movie, Willy Wonka movie with uh, Johnny Depp where at the end of it, spoiler alert, um, at the end of it, uh, Willy Wonka's dad is a uh, robotic technician. But here's the thing about the future right now is that like, we are so far advanced from even the Willy Wonka movie that we actually have the power to automate. We really need to have a paradigm shift about money equaling power. Money equals influence. Influence equals social equity and power. When you can civil engineer a society, that's real power. Like that's really, really power. Right now we say it's because who's got the money, right? Well, here's the thing. It's like, when we automate menial jobs, they can automate agriculture right now completely. The level of thinking machines and thinking programs that we have now are creating solutions to technological problems that we can't figure out and machines are figuring out for us. Like we've automated, not only have we automated the solutions, but we've automated the act of asking the next progressive questions about technology as well. So. The idea of us even working within a system that has money can become to become more and more abstract because the middle class works what kind of jobs, you know, factory jobs, those are always supposed to be the good ones, right? Resource jobs are supposed to be like the good jobs. We're trying to shift that to green jobs, right? So what's that look like? It looks like, you know, wind, solar, geothermal. These are still like somewhat laborious jobs. We're still yeah. connecting things. Those are going to be automated soon enough. 10 years, they have, they have robots that can do parkour now. Like, and then they have deep thinking machines, like eventually putting the rivet bolts into the two things is not going to be a human job either. No. So where, so what will the jobs, what will the jobs be? Well, maybe somebody will say, well, then the jobs will be like arts and culture. Well, you know, I, I know of an AI machine that uses Python to listen to songs and then produce visual moving representations of what it interprets a visual representation of that song will be. It's creating art. So we have artificial intelligence now that's creating art that I actually find to be very captivating. So essentially, we can automate the entirety of experience. So that would leave us all without any jobs. So if we're not, none of us are working, then how would 1% or whoever is the power paradigm now, how would they, like, how do they keep power? So there's a couple different things that, like, can happen there. Well, maybe they won't. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll automate themselves out of, into obsolescence, and we will just kind of, like, got the things and be like, okay, I guess we have a future. Or maybe things like UBI, for example, are a good way to introduce, it's, it's interesting too, when we were talking earlier about how capitalism isn't even good at being capitalist. They need to introduce UBI because it makes money relevant still. Right. Because if, if we automate the way we're going and money becomes irrelevant, then, then they're going to have to have something else. And that's what I think of like things like player, like, um, Get Ready Player One, where it's like it's a social gaming thing where everybody's involved and whatnot. But UBI at least gets them anchored in control over us. You know what I mean? Because they're if they're issuing currency, yeah. that is only spendable back in it's like the company town, yeah, right? Yeah, they're like yeah, that keeps them in business. Yes, it, yeah, yeah. It, it, it actually it makes sense for like people who are interested in seeing the survival of capitalism to invest in UBI now. To get it now, because the more that technology advances without even our consent, the more that things are going to actually, you know, quote unquote, naturally occur that are not going to favor capitalism. 
we have to ask ourselves really like when it comes to UBI too is like what is the point of society? Exactly. What is yeah. the point? If it's just for me to own like a Ford F one fifty and the biggest screen TV, then shit, this sucks. Like this sucks. Yeah. But I'm under the impression from marketing and just the world and whatever it, that that's not really the point, and I don't think it's the point. No. But I think it's like, if, but we could have these amazing, we could have this amazing, a more amazing world, more with more justice and more equity for everyone, if we treated people as human beings that deserved support, not just potential either leeches or producers. Mm -hmm. It's a very binary. It's either you're sucking from the system or you're contributing to it. Yeah. It's one or the other. And that's such a, to me, it's such a, it's such a tragic way to view when we view people as resources i suppose in a structure of business and whatnot there's some or war or all these other things that i find almost meaningless there's an advantage to that but when we stop looking at people as resources and start looking at resources as resources i think um we'll get some very different deliverables from that in my own case though, i just know that like without this thing that happened i would have never been able to because i talked to you before like years ago and I said, you know, I hear like about people that want to make big change. And my question is like, well, what's the next step? Mm -hmm. And I very rarely hear what the next step is. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's like once I was able to detach myself from a harmful system and dream of a better future for myself and have the support to get there, it did put a crack in my logic that allowed me to see like that we could, we definitely could have a different world. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people are just stuck with the way things are because they are that way. When we are actually doing visioning, mm -hmm. we have to be willing to engage with that which feels impossible. Yeah. And, like, we, we're not going to move forward by only applying the solutions that already exist mm -hmm. because if the solutions that already exist could solve the problems they would they would it would have happened yeah and so there's something yeah, about the solutions that we have access to or that do feel possible that aren't quite it and we need to be willing to look further into things that you know and i i that response to that, like, well, what next? Like, to what end? What's the goal? Yeah, what's I think the next that step? that's also something that, like, that's uh, that's internalized empire. You think so? Right? I do because I think that the idea that we will know the outcome before we set out is. Uh, that's that's how business operates, right? We have a business plan, we have goals yeah. and projections and you know and inputs equal outputs and like we were saying earlier, that's a model that works when you have a bunch of people in suits sitting at a table where their guts and their sex are out. Yeah. They're not included. Yeah. <laughs> because we know that when we're actually sitting in a room where we're sitting in a circle mm. of our whole selves there is going to be a predictable amount of unpredictable mm. that will come into the mm -hmm. space because we're humans. Right. And yeah. so we can't actually know what is going to happen or like what we are going to achieve, mm. but to use that as a reason to not try, then we let them win the game. Well, I, yeah, I think that's just an, a tactic too. Is that that uncertainty has been used to suppress civil and positive forms of civil engineering throughout history? Yeah. Well, we don't know what's going to happen. So here, well, then what? Then obviously, what's going to happen is a negative thing. I hear that in the states a lot when I hear the rhetoric around "quote unquote" communism, mm -hmm. right? And um, in Ronaldo Walcott's essay, "Property," they talk about communism as with a small c. Yeah. Um, because like not owning any property is a very kind of, for people who say, well, it's a very kind of socialist slash communist kind of idea. Right. But it's the, uh, it's the threat of something bad. So that's why we don't change because even though we know we have it, it's not great, it's not perfect, but it's ours. 
And we shouldn't change because the change is uncertain and it could be so bad it might be like those guys over there and we all know they, like, they have it super bad, right? People are trying to escape that country. People say like, oh, communists, we don't want communists, we don't want to be like China, we don't want to be like Cuba. Well, a couple things, like maybe China and Cuba aren't the greatest examples of communism to a lot of degrees. Maybe there's some more nuance to that, but also like that never ending threat of like, you could have it worse is a very, that is a very empire view. Buddhists would say like, you're right, you know, because it's uncertain, it could be worse. But that also means there's a very likely chance that it could be better. The fact is we don't know. <laughs> so yeah. Embracing the unpredictability of, of change, I think, is hard. I think it's very valid point, just very hard. Well, and yeah. like you said, you know, of like, yeah, but it maybe it's not great, but it's ours. It reminds me of, I did this, this series of workshops in the high school in Castlegar. Hmm. And so over the course of a week, I sat with every single class in the high school in the high school wow and i asked the same question or the same series of questions mm -hmm. to all of the groups and i said you know would you be chill if your best friend told you that they were gay mm. 90% of students move themselves to the side of the room to say, yeah, of course I would be chill. Um, would you be chill if your best friend told you that they were trans? A little bit less, but still, by and large, people were wanting to be more supportive. They right. were admitting that maybe they weren't totally there and they wouldn't totally get it, but they, they wanted to be. Then I asked the question, do you feel like your school is a safe place to be queer or trans? <laughs> Wait a second. that up. Everyone, everyone rushed to the other side of the room. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happened in every single class. Yeah. Because, and, and then, so I asked them, I said, you know, at what point does what you feel as an individual or does what your class feel as a group of peers where does it change to a place where we have a recognized culture in the school at large that's a really that good point safe. we have actually have a consensus of a majority there too saying we want it to be safe but we all know it is not safe yeah exactly wow. and and so you know a lot of them were able to to say oh well you know it's it's the older, you know, like the, the grade eights were like, oh, well, you know, we're chill, but it's the older kids. It's the seniors. Like the seniors aren't chill. Right, right. Right. And. But what did the seniors say? Well. They were chill, but somebody else wasn't chill? Yeah, it was like, well, you know, it, again, it was like people breaking off and, you know, building on this Ronaldo Walcott, like yeah. talking about division. Yeah. You know, that the. Young women in the class would say, well, we're fine, but it's the guys. Right. Right. And the guys would say, the well, guys, we're okay, but the teachers are... Yeah, yeah. Or, or the guys would say, well, we're fine, but it's the lacrosse guys. Uh, right. And they all, like, everybody <laughs> wanted to push it off to somebody else. <laughs> it's always the right? guys. But then I said, you know, at what point does the collective agreement across the school that we all want this place to be safe... Like, where does that ownership, that sense of, like, it's not perfect, but it's ours, at what point do we then take that position mm -hmm. and say, it's ours, and therefore we get to decide that it's safe, and we are going to enact that in these ways? Hmm. Yeah, it makes me think about, um, that ownership makes me think about something you were talking about earlier, about, like, how within these systems, these systems, like, are not, like, they don't support change. So it's like, okay, well... Universal basic income. I would say that, like, if the ideas could be presented unilaterally in a way without there being a whole bunch of marketing behind it that, like, was like, oh, this message is coming to you from socialists. If people could just see it and say, like, hey, you know your neighbor Steve over there? Yeah, he's been down on his luck. we got a program here. It's going to get him back on his feet inside of a year. He's probably going to have less of a drug problem. He'll probably take a lot more accountability for himself. He'll have a career he loves. Or are you jealous because you don't have a career you love? Well, here, why don't you go on the same program? You can get a career you love. 
most people are like, yeah, I want that, right? Exactly. And, and that's where like, it has to be universal. Yes. Yes, yeah, so I agree. Because you don't want somebody saying like, well, how come, I mean, yeah, I agree. It has to be universal. It has to be the opportunity to change your life dramatically it has to be given to all people. So there's, there's also an accountability piece there, though, too. If you give, if you give a, a UBI to people who run a house, and then you're saying, okay, you have a house and stuff, but you, you're eligible for a portion of this UBI as well, because it's universal. And they say, well, like, no. Well, then you said no. Yeah. Yeah, you said no, and it's fine. But to get this thing through, even if we had a consent, even if we could present the idea to the majority of, say, Canadians, um, and they saw, okay, yeah, actually, this makes sense. Um, the system in which we would vote for it, the, the whole process of trying to get it pushed through the uh, colonial legislative process, I, I think we saw that with things like um, proportional representation. Yeah. There's like four different methods of proportional representation. A couple of them are really good. A few of them would make a really big difference in the landscape politically. How we presented the ideas and then how we rolled it out in order to get people's opinions on it was like picking a prom and king queen. It wasn't like a really like, it was like one popular guy saying yes and one popular guy saying no. And then which popular guy do you like the most? Like it has nothing to do with the popular guys. No. It has and to do with the idea. And they like worded it like a trap. Yes. So that people would be confused. And yes. Yeah. Like all of these things. Exactly. Where we can't expect, you know. Audre Lorde said it best, right? The master's tools aren't going to dismantle it. Like, we do need to be looking at these things from the perspective of mutual aid and, and direct action. I think that UBI has the potential to be a powerful transitional force in that because a lot of people don't feel like they can act directly towards the change they want to see in the world because they're just fucking getting by. Yeah, they're exhausted. There's so many billionaires actually talking about it too, right? Elon Musk and Bill Gates have both been like, we need to introduce UBI. It is a logical next step. Um, so when we talk about it's ours, it belongs to us, <coughs> we got to take responsibility for it. In the context of trying to bring UBI into the society we have now, <coughs> what would you say is our... Her, like, what is stopping us right now, specifically? Because like, I know it's political will, but what does that look like? Mm. And what is the next step to actually demonstrable action from our current lords? And yeah, I mean, I think I think about it from two directions, and I think there always has to be at least at least that much, right? But so that's awfully non-binary of you. Um, that like from one side, I think that the move to continue, uh, and take profit driven investment out of politics mm. is really, really important because I think that that political will piece will continue to be challenging so long as there are people who are in decision making positions that are profiting off of keeping the solutions from happening. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is one side. And I think the other side is like building, uh, building the like, I don't know, I'm not a big fan of like normalization as a word, but like realistically to have more people and more like very normal, everyday average working class people recognizing the value of this mm -hmm. and making it so that it's really something uh, that that only the, only the most asshole politicians would stand in the way of it, right? Because, and I, I, I was really hopeful that the CERB program mm. was going to do that. It had potential. Right, and I, I think that for a lot of people, it did do that. Mm -hmm. But because of the way that it was spun and the way that the media talks about it. And because some of those, uh, attitudes about like, you know, lazy welfare sponge, right. Bootstrap ideology. Um, you know, it did put people in a position where I don't think that it didn't, it didn't catch as well as it needed to. And 
I think that a part of that is because it wasn't universal, mm -hmm. right? I think that for a UBI system to actually be successful, it does have to be universal because a huge part of what is, um, oh, okay. Um, yeah, a huge part of the barrier is the like competition and scarcity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of people too don't, don't, they don't actually know what they would do they don't actually know. Like no. if I, there's so many people I, you know, you say somebody like, what would you do if you won the lottery? And they, they, they dream wildly. And if I say, well, what if you didn't win the lottery, but you didn't have to worry about your rent anymore? Well, then they might think, okay, well then I would, you know, maybe I'd do something, maybe I'd go back to school, or whatever. But if I said to them like, well, what if you didn't have to worry about your rent and you didn't win the lottery, but you definitely could pursue a career that, you had training for a couple of years for, what would you do? Like when we, when we actually gave them like a, a more specific field of like, instead of just being this wild, unlimited landscape of possibilities, which to some degree it is, if we made it more specific and more tangible and just said like, what if you didn't have to make a choice between your health and your home? What if you didn't have to make a choice about your job based on what produces the most amount of money, but what actually produces the most amount of uh, return value to you as a person mm -hmm. our society would look so much different but oh a lot God, of people yeah. wouldn't know what the first answer is most people i go up to and say like a lot especially a lot of young people right now that are really into the media rush of the world they're looking around like their metrics are numbers if they make six figures seven figures that's success mm -hmm. well, i'm a bit older to me it's like <clears throat> if i if i have enough energy to go to the gym to do the things I like with my friends, you know, buy looking at quality of life. Yeah, quality yeah. of life as opposed yeah. to, and I'm not tying that directly to being a millionaire. I'm tying it to satisfaction in, in my participating in my environment, much like my occupational therapist would say. Yeah, it would just take. I think it's going to take a little bit. I agree, though. Your your idea around the common person has to be behind this, and then that's when we'll see. That is like the dynamic of change socially, period. Yeah. It's like everybody, has, the everyday person has to be like, hey, and I think there are a lot of people that are, as long as it's framed properly, I think that I think we can get by and it's when it be things, these things get spun and become exotic and weird and that's when people are like, I don't know if this is going to work. Yeah. But when it is a matter of like, actually, what if we just made sure that people were okay? Yeah. 